Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Tami Kuza. And our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. UN Security Council briefed on human rights situation in Burundi, diplomatic row erupts between South Africa and Kenya, and Ebola conference to generate funding and solidarity for West Africa. In economics, BRICS countries vow to deepen cooperation, and in sports news, tough all-Africa games draw for Ghana's under-23 team. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The UN Security Council says tens of thousands of people have died in South Sudan and more than two million have been displaced all because their political leaders have failed to pursue peace. In a statement, council members expressed their disappointment with the actions of President Silva Kiir, former Vice President Rahik Macha, and other leaders who they said have put their personal ambitions ahead of the good of their country and their people. Dian Pin reports. The Security Council said their failure to pursue peace has caused the deaths of scores of civilians, the displacement of more than two million people, and attacks on UN peacekeepers, some of them fatal. Council members renewed their grave alarm at the 19 months of violence in South Sudan and what they characterized as the resulting man-made political, security, humanitarian and economic catastrophe. They also condemned human rights violations and abuses that had occurred, including castration, mass rape and the burning of women and children in their homes. The decision by Burundi's president to run for a third term has undermined a decade of progress in building democratic institutions and a sense of national unity. Addressing the UN Security Council, Human Rights Chief Ziad Rahad al-Hussein expressed concern about the deterioration of human rights in the African country. Since President Pierre Nkurunziza's announcement in April, more than 140,000 Burundians have fled to neighboring countries to escape political violence. Al-Hussein says the UN Human Rights Office in the country has documented dozens of killings of demonstrators and human rights defenders by militia members and the security forces. The crisis arising from President Pierre Nkurunziza's decision to run for a third term in office has undermined a decade of steady progress in building democratic institutions and precious gains in the sense of a common national community. Peaceful protests have been met with unwanted or unwarranted use of force, 
including lethal force, in violation of Burundi's obligation under national and international law to guarantee the right to freedom of assembly. Twelve people have died after the overcrowded boats sank off the coast of Libya. A total of 393 other migrants were saved in four different operations, and another 106 migrants were saved by two Coast Guard frigates operating off the southern Italian island of Lampedusa. Tens of thousands of migrants fleeing war in hunger in Africa and the Middle East have crossed the Mediterranean to Italy and Greece this year. More than 2,000 are estimated to have drowned. A humanitarian truce in Yemen will start from tonight and last until the end of the Muslim month of Ramadan. The pause in the fighting aims to allow for the delivery of assistance to some of the 21 million Yemenis in need. The United Nations has raised Yemen to its highest level in humanitarian crisis, placing it alongside emergencies in South Sudan, Syria and Iraq. And finally, the Synagogue Church of All Nations in Nigeria maintains that the collapse of a building in Lagos last September was a result of sabotage. 114 people, including more than 80 South Africans, died in the tragedy. Engineers say the collapse of the building was a result of shoddy work. The Church of Televangelist T.B. Joshua has rejected the verdict of the Nigerian coroner that the church should be indicted for the tragedy, claiming... It's biased. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, the 10th of July, the 191st day of 2015, with 174 days left in the year. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon will call for continued solidarity with the three West African countries most impacted by the unprecedented Ebola outbreak at today's International Ebola Recovery Conference in New York. The conference will seek to raise $3.2 billion over the next two years so that Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone can fully rebound from the crisis. Sean Bryce Peace reports from New York. New Ebola cases average between 9 and 30 per week across the region. Liberia, which was declared Ebola-free in May, saw new cases emerge in June, confirming the unpredictable nature of the stubborn outbreak, as Dr. David Nabarro explains. We are seeing most of the new cases now as people who are on the lists of contacts of those who've got the disease before. And that means that there are fewer and fewer surprises. There are some, and that is always a continuous worry. But on the other hand, we do know that there are certain situations where the virus appears to survive in individuals for longer than the expected period. And we are also aware that there are some communities who are finding it difficult to fully trust the response process and 
they are the communities where transmission is still occurring. He explained that the World Health Organization is meticulously investigating the risks around cases where parts of the virus remain in the body and cannot as yet confirm if it presents a continued risk to others. That said, he believes they continue to be moving in a positive direction. Our general judgment is that the shape of the response is in a good direction. It's irritating that we are not able to get to zero as quickly as we would like. But at the same time, we can look you in the eye and say that in general we believe that the response is going right and we are super impressed by the way in which the thousands of people working on this response are pulling together and helping us move towards its end. I just wish I, I could tell you when, but I can't. The presidents of the three worst affected countries will address the recovery conference along with AU chairperson Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe, where the case will be made for continued support to rebuild societies shattered by the virus, as the UN Development Fund's Ebola response coordinator Sunil Saigal explains. There is a need to build resilience. We talk about getting to zero and staying at zero, but in order to stay at zero we need to build resilience in these countries so that they can, as it were, lift themselves up but, but, and return to the path to development where they were before, but not just in the state where they were before, but stronger. With the message that the social and economic impacts of Ebola will continue to be felt long after the outbreak is ended in West Africa, the UN conference is partnering with the African Union, the European Union, the World Bank and the African Development Bank. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Two weeks after the contested parliamentary elections that took place in Burundi and with presidential polls just days away, senior United Nations officials warned the Security Council yesterday that the situation prevailing in the Central African Republic is once again at risk of sliding into violence. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, told the Security Council that members of Burundi's opposition parties, civil society activists and media figures have been targeted for intimidation, severe harassment and arbitrary detention in the past six months. Sherwin Bryce Peace has more. The human rights chief, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, says the government is determined to ignore every warning signal despite pleas for dialogue and a delay in the polls. The people of Burundi and the region deserve far better than these recurring cycles of impunity, suffering and destruction. They have a right to go about their lives peacefully in freedom, equality and dignity without fear and uh, with equitable access to their country's many resources and opportunities. They look to this council to exert its authority in order to ensure a speedy political solution to this dreadful crisis. He dismissed government denials that rumour rather than realities on the ground resulted in 150,000 refugees fleeing the country. Contrary to some recent reports, the massive outflows of refugees appear to have been sparked not by rumour, uh, but by precise and targeted campaigns of intimidation and terror. Uh, refugees interviewed by my office in the DRC, Rwanda and Tanzania continue to refer to the Imbenerakore militia as the main threat, but some have also stated that the militants from other groups are also employing violence. 
a new and disturbing development. With counsel again warned, the country is on the brink. On this occasion, by the Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs, Tybrook Zerahun. The grave danger the country faces should not be underestimated, given the increasing polarization and the apparent choice of Burundian leaders to put personal interest before those of the country. The East African Community Summit communique provides a clear push path forward. The United Nations remains ready to provide whatever support is needed. Burundi's ambassador Albert Shingiro indicated they continue to engage with the region about a postponement in the presidential election, but within the parameters of the constitution. Here speaking French with English translation. The government welcomes the recommendation, yet at the same time, the provisions of the constitution of our country don't allow us to postpone elections to that date. Pursuant to the Burundian constitution, the president of the republic is elected one month before the end of his term. But the term of the current president would end on 26 August. That means that the new president has to be elected on 26 July latest. We'd be very happy to compromise a postponement of a week towards 21 or 22 would be totally fine. Shingiro also blamed failed coup leaders for the violence in his country that observers have blamed on a government-backed youth militia and the police. The Security Council is unlikely to take any robust measures against the country due to concerns of some permanent members that the holding of elections is an internal matter for the country. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Today we ask you, do you think Burundi should postpone the elections? Give us your thoughts on and views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think Burundi should postpone the elections? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's top immigration officials are expected in the Kenyan capital Nairobi in the next three weeks to review bilateral visa rules that have caused a bitter diplomatic row between the two countries. The meeting will pave the way for issuance of free visa passes to nationals of the two countries at major airports from September this year. Senators in the Kenyan parliament have bitterly complained of getting a raw deal in visa relations with South Africa after Pretoria imposed strict visa rules in June last year. Our Nairobi correspondent Mwagi Konyo has more. The governments of Kenya and South Africa are working to resolve the diplomatic visa row between the two countries. And top immigration officials from South Africa are expected in Nairobi in the next three weeks to review the bilateral visa row that could likely push the two nations to the brink of a serious diplomatic fallout. The visa row between the two African countries also poses a threat to the cordial trade relations between the two nations. 
Last year, South Africa imposed the tough rules on Kenyans seeking to visit South Africa for trade, education, and medical facilities and imposed a service charge of 70 U.S. dollars for applications. Kenya had initially retaliated with similar sanctions. Kenya had initially retaliated with similar sanctions, including imposition of a service charge on its visas, but suspended the measure to pave the way for talks. But a number of senators in the Kenyan parliament have bitterly complained of getting a role deal in visa relations with the South African government after Pretoria imposed the street visa rules in June last year. And according to the chair lady of the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs, Senator Fatuma Dulo, the Kenyan cabinet secretary for foreign affairs, Amina Mohammed, has already raised the matter with the South African officials. Mr. Speaker, sir, in June 2015, the cabinet secretary, Ambassador Amina, met with the South African Minister for International Relations and Cooperation, His Excellency Mrs. Maite Mkoana, on the sidelines of the South African Union Summit in Pretoria, where the cabinet secretary indicated that in the event that the current impasse is not resolved, Kenya is ready to resort to reciprocal measures on visa issuance. The meeting resolved that the Minister for Home Affairs of South Africa will send a high-level delegation to Nairobi to discuss immigration matters with their counterparts at the State Department of Interior and resolve outstanding matters. In this regard, the High Commission of the Republic of South Africa has informed the officials from the Ministry of Home Affairs intend to visit Kenya from 3rd to 5th August 2015. But according to Senator Mutahi Kagwe, Kenyans are traveling to South Africa are undergoing through difficulties, especially these ones of visa to enter South Africa. Mr. Speaker, I raise this question in response to very many problems that Kenyans are experiencing in regards to traveling to South Africa. South Africa is supposed to be a friendly nation to Kenya, and I believe that at the moment they are treating Kenyans like poor cousins with disdain, with arrogance, and disrespect. This is not how brotherly nations are supposed to treat each other. When you look at the trade between ourselves and South Africa, South Africa is basically the net gainer. So you would imagine that under the circumstances, they would be treating Kenyans with a lot more respect and modesty than they are currently doing. So when we are told that somebody on a, in a hospital bed needs to come back to Kenya to get a visa so that they can go back to a hospital bed in South Africa, that in a nutshell is hostility. At the very best, what we are asking the government to do is one of two things. Either they speak to the South African government so that the South African government can treat Kenyans the way we treat South Africans, with respect, like brothers and sisters, and people that we like. Mr. Speaker, Kenya is not a banana republic. That is one option. The other option, Mr. Speaker, if the South Africans cannot reciprocate and treat us with respect, then I think it behoves on the Kenya government to treat the South Africans exactly the way that they are treating Kenyans. But according to the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs, Kenya and South Africa have experienced the challenges resulting from different immigration policies. Senator Fatumo Dulo again. For the last five years, Kenya and South Africa have experienced challenges resulting from different immigration policies, particularly on visa and work permit application. It is important to note that uh, Kenya does not levy visa fees to South Africa visiting Kenya for less than one month, and no visa is required for the same period. South African visitors who require to stay in Kenya for more than one month can apply and obtain visas at our ports of entry. Kenya 
Kenyans, on the other hand, are subjected to a referred visa regime in order to enter South Africa for business, holiday, study or medical tourism. In addition, South Africa requires Kenyan nationals transiting through South Africa to obtain transit visas even when the person transiting does not leave the airport. But according to official data, at least 135,000 passengers landed at the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport, Nairobi, from Johannesburg last year compared to 130,000 who flew from Kenya to South Africa during the same period. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. BRICS countries have vowed to deepen their cooperation after signing a raft of cooperation agreements. President Jacob Zuma and other leaders from BRICS countries have witnessed the signing of a memorandum of understanding between the new BRICS Development Bank and development banks from the respective countries, including the Development Bank of South Africa. Southern Africa. The five countries have also agreed to have a common website that will have information about their programs and activities. Ndebo Mukobo has more. Five countries from four continents have come together to set up the new agenda on global stage. All of them are economic powerhouses in their regions. After seven years of their cooperation, the BRICS countries are satisfied with their work. They've set up a new development bank and the contingency currency reserves. And President Jacob Zuma says to strengthen the BRICS brand globally, they have to put more efforts in making sure that the environment remains conducive for investment. He says there is no doubt BRICS is a force to be reckoned with. We congratulate our chairperson on the successful completion and our adoption of the strategy for BRICS economic partnership, which will provide a platform for further intensifying our economic cooperation in all identified priority sectors. South Africa is eagerly looking forward to working together with our fellow BRICS countries to implement the strategy for the benefit of our people. And as the new partnership takes shape, their countries are formalizing relations. Leaders witness the signing of the agreements in the arts and culture with their national development banks working together with the newly created BRICS Development Bank. Speaking through an interpreter, Russian President Vladimir Putin says they need to increase trade amongst themselves. We welcomed the completion of the process of establishment of the new development bank and the contingent reserves arrangement that have the cumulative volume of resources that amounts to $200 billion. They will come to the full capacity in the near future. The new bank in particular will deal with giving loans for the joint large-scale programs in transport and energy infrastructure, industrial development and industrial development. We are planning to work out the road map of investment cooperation within BRICS by the end of the current year. BRICS leaders have supported the efforts of the Russian presidency aimed at expanding the humanitarian dimension of our cooperation. Intensification of our contacts between our countries will be definitely facilitated by our agreement on cooperation in culture. The seventh BRICS summit happens amidst challenges facing the globe with conflicts, terrorism and market instability threatening to derail world peace. This is a chance for the United Voices under BRICS to tell the United Nations to provide leadership. Brazilian President Delmar Rousseff elaborates. 
During this summit, may we once again reiterate BRICS' commitment to a comprehensive, broad, multilateral system, one that is truly transparent and representative, and one that reflects the ongoing changes in the power reality. Brazil believes that a United Nations, a reformed, expanded United Nations Security Council will prove more legitimate and more effective in performing the important role of preserving international peace and overall collective security. The summit will end later this morning with the adoption of the UFA declaration and the UFA action plan which will entail areas of cooperation and proposal by Russia as BRICS president. I am Debumokob of UFA in Russia. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1976. Four mercenaries, three British and one American, are executed by firing squad in Angola as three rebel movements struggle for power after the country's decolonization from Portugal in 1975. And that was today in history in 1976. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. African countries urgently need to shake up their services sector if they are to compete in the global marketplace and achieve key sustainable development goals. The warning comes from the United Nations Trade and Development Agency, UNCTAD, whose latest report also calls for massive investment in basic services such as water, energy and telecommunications. Without such action, UNCTAD's Junior Davis says the continent will not get the foreign investment it needs for sustainable growth. Why do services matter in Africa? Services matter in Africa because they contribute 32% of the total workforce of the country. In some countries this can be as high as 80% of the total workforce. And, of course, it accounts now for around about 49% of their output. It's not just the obvious things like flipping burgers or answering a telephone. Services now are much more dynamic in Africa. They're growing from a relatively low base, but they're growing. They've become tradable goods in themselves. You also mentioned telemedicine is really taking off Mauritius, South Africa. What's wonderful about telemedicine is that it addresses a critical development problem. As we know in the Sustainable Development Goals and their predecessors, the MDGs, they were very important health-related targets, some related to water and sanitation, others related to maternal mortality rates. Now, telemedicine is a means of getting critical diagnostic and health services out, particularly into rural areas, using modern-day telecommunications. And there are various examples of this in South Africa, in Mauritius, and increasingly in countries like Ghana, for example, we're seeing the emergence of telemedicine because it cuts down the costs of delivering these services really where they're needed. And this will be very important in Africa being able to achieve key social welfare, sustainable development goals. That's all very well and good, isn't it? But wasn't there an element of the report suggesting that there is such a lack of regional cooperation, there's too much carving out going on still in negotiations and we're not going to get these huge infrastructure projects going uh, to help the services in the countries unless there's a bit more cooperation going on. I think in some areas we already see the beginnings of greater regional cooperation, particularly in terms of the African financial services sector. There are various regional bodies that already exist. 
regulatory bodies. Regulatory bodies. And that helps to reduce the costs and the burdens that these countries face in regulating what is a very active and growing aspect of the financial sector, i.e. cross-border banks. Secondly, the continental free trade area, which is currently being negotiated and countries hope will be implemented in 2017, is really about giving life to Africa's Agenda 2063, which is to encourage greater participation, greater partnership, greater coordination on the regional and then pan-African level. If you don't have, for example, basic services such as energy, regular water, decent telecommunications, you're not going to attract the big multinational firms who are going to build car plants, factories, big engineering firms into your country if they can't have regular water energy supply. What our report notices, and I suppose highlights critically, is that very often there's what we call a policy disconnect in the services sector. You may have a country like, for example, Pagina Faso, which in its national development plan highlights the importance of its cultural industries. That's the music and traditional goods sectors. And these are important exports. But when they enter into multilateral trade agreements, they don't appear. They don't appear in any of the agreements that they reach. So at the national level, when we say, for example, in Kenya and Senegal, that we want to increase the role and importance of business processing, outsourcing, as a key services sector, we have to see that reflected in the agreements that they reach, whether at the GATS or as part of the emerging continental free trade area. And we don't see that. And this is a problem. That was Junior Davis of the United Nations Trade and Development Agency, and he was speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8.29 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today we ask you, do you think Burundi should postpone the elections? Give us your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think Burundi should postpone the elections? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. With Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The UN Security Council says tens of thousands of people have died in South Sudan and more than two million have been displaced or because their political leaders have failed to pursue peace. Twelve migrants have died after their overcrowded boats sank off the coast of Libya. A total of 393 other migrants were saved in four different operations. And a humanitarian truce in Yemen will start from tonight and last until the end of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Malawi wants to cut to 10% its current donor 
independence. This was announced at a press briefing in Lulongwe and currently the donor contribution towards the budget is standing at 40%. With the donor freeze in 2013 due to the public plunder of finances at Capitol Hill, the government is finding it hard to service the nation. George Mango reports from Planta. The writing is now on the wall that donors are forsaken Malawi again for the third time since 2013 in her plea for the 40% donors' contribution towards the just-approved 2.2 billion 2015-2016 national budget. In the ears, thoughts, and eyes of many economists, this is not surprising since Capitol Hill has today not put its house in order in terms of tightening its fiscal policies. Through the news conference held in the administrative capital Longwe, Malawi hinted that she plans to reduce to just 10% its current dependence on donor funds. Currently, domestic revenues account for about 60% of total national budget. Longwe wants domestic resources to finance 90% of the national budget anytime soon, possibly from next year. Some economists have since said the syndrome is long overdue because Malawi needs to start generating its own resources. Blunter-based business economist and entrepreneur Frederick Changaya has this to say. We need to have a team, even economic policies. Nobody vets economic policies. Nobody can stand and, and calculate and say the benefits, the socioeconomic benefit of, of subsidy, for example, is this. You need to have an independent mind. That should say this subsidy... The way it is, is wrong. Whether politically it looks very good, no, this subsidy is wrong. If we we need a subsidy, this is how it must be configured. In a manner that will generate meaningful economic returns for the same people. Because sometimes it's easy to brush you with a a subsidy in front of you. But that subsidy is very bad. Unfortunately, it could also be that that's what people see. But these people that see this as a majority, as masses, are not enlightened people. Whenever the government says no, no subsidy, they may not even vote for that. Authorities have since outlined measures that will assist Malawi to maximize domestic revenue collection for implementation of subsequent budgets and achieve its claimed goal. But no new ideas have come forth. Minister of Finance and Economic Planning, Guru Gondre, noted that Malawi has a strong potential to adequately finance its budget using domestic resources, citing countries such as Kenya, which he said finances 90% of its recurrent budget using domestic resources. Regardless of the economic slowdown that has characterized the past financial years, a stable macroeconomic situation that would include the availability of foreign reserves with a stable exchange rate and a low inflation and the low interest rates would prevail in Malawi. Speaking recently, UK's International Development Minister Grant Sharps indicated that while the UK will continue with indirect support to Malawi towards education and young people, there is need for the government to build trust with donors. So uh, USAID have been leading the way on this. The UK uh, wants to back their program because we've seen some of the results that we were just talking about uh, at that official launch ceremony just now, where kids are actually coming out of um, uh, the, the different grades able to, uh, able to read, for example, where in the past they would, sure, go through the, the school year but if the answer is they come out of the school year and they're still not able to, to read because of the quality of teaching and, and what have you were the problems, then as the, uh, as, as, as the education ministry were just saying, 
that doesn't help anyone. So the quality of education, the quality of teaching, and not just the buildings. But during the meeting, it was also highlighted that government wants to increase the share of domestic revenue from 60% today to 90%, or above, nevertheless, reduce the share of development partners' contribution to the budget, which hovers at 40%. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blanta. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Students at the African Leadership Academy have expressed concern that while many young people on the African continent face specific entry barriers, the biggest obstacle is insufficient demand for their labor. They say throughout they've come to learn that getting into the labor market is the single most challenging task, citing strict labor practices as the reason for their trouble. Selina Dobong reports. This group of young people who have been more fortunate than millions of other young people across the continent say they are concerned that a strong preference for work experience on the part of employers is largely to blame for the high number of unemployed youth on the African continent. They have been brought together by the African Leadership Academy, which connects promising young leaders from all 54 African nations for a pre-university program in South Africa, with a focus on entrepreneurial leadership. At a roundtable discussion earlier, the students sought to identify challenges they face and could potentially be facing in their professional fields. They say labor regulations have led to segmented labor markets where job holders are protected and job seekers, millions of whom are young people, face strong reluctance on the part of employers who fear the high costs and commitments involved in hiring. Edward Dopu, Amnesty International's Regional Activism and Youth Coordinator for Africa, elaborates. Corporates are partly to blame. I think corporates are talking about the skills gap. They say that graduates are not skilled, they're not ready for the workforce. But I think that we also need to be very careful about that narrative because it sounds like victim blaming to me, that young people are the victims of an of an economic landscape that is very, very difficult. The statistics show that the young people living today in 2015 are the most educated cohort that has ever existed. There are people in North Africa, when we look at the Arab Spring, many of those young people that protested actually were in university and they couldn't find jobs. So when we're talking about skills gap, right, we're also talking about people who are skilled and are still not finding work. So for me, I I feel we need to have a more sophisticated conversation. I, I, I think it's an incomplete story to just say young people are not skilled. I think, you know, Jobs that used to be done by people are now being done by machines, right? We see this in mining. So there's something structural that's happening in the world in this moment that we're in. And that's why I said on the panel that we're living in a post-employment economy. Many young people remain in internships for years. Ndopu says these opportunities are even more scarce for young people like him with disabilities. As far as I know, I think I may be the only ANH graduate with a physical disability uh, to date. And so for me, this is quite personal, but I, I, would, I would invest that coin in a scholarship program that is specifically targeted at young Africans with disabilities because I believe that this is an overlooked and disenfranchised segment of society that has a lot to offer 
not just Africa, but humanity as a whole. And so I firmly believe in the dignity of people with disabilities. And so I would want people with all kinds of disabilities, students, to benefit from the extraordinary opportunities that I've been so fortunate to have gone through as a result of ALA. Kupo Urumeng, also from the Leadership Academy, shares Ndopu's sentiment about the failure of corporates to provide opportunities for young people. Originally from Botswana, Urumeng says she has a desire to go back to her home country to give back to her community. But because opportunities are scarce, she has set temporary home in South Africa, making an impact in the field of mathematics and entrepreneurship, amongst others. Major in whatever you major in, and you have that degree, and a lot of times you are super excited to finally put it into action. This is another sad thing, which back home I have friends who are in university, friends who I graduated with from high school, and some of them have found internships. Actually, I, when I was in the States, was applying for internships through people that I thought I had maybe like interacted with, and I failed. I sent my CV to 10 companies and failed. And the, you know, and the failure sometimes is more than just people saying, oh, we've got people coming. It's like, you know, you, you keep going to the same company and you don't get a response, you know. So it's, I think there is, there is a general lack of interest, but there's also just a general lack of trust. It's just young people everywhere. We, we need to be trusted a little bit more with the skills that we have. In the face of all these challenges, Margaret Miga, Director of Global Partnerships at the ALA, remains optimistic. She says the little that young people are doing to bring about change in the lives of those less fortunate makes all the difference. She says the Academy is helping to create lasting change in Africa. We have a young man at the age of 24 who has lived his entire life with significant disabilities that, that compared to his peers on the continent, would have meant that he he wouldn't have been able to make social contributions. And he's a leader. He's leading policy across the continent and leading human rights charges that are just amazing in terms of the kinds of positive social footprint that this will have. Not so much that ALA is saying, look what's happening, but the world is acknowledging and giving accolades to these young people. That was Margaret Miga, Director of Global Partnerships at the African Leadership Academy and reporting for Channel Africa in Johannesburg, I am Selina Ndobong. The Peace Parks Foundation has donated over 240,000 U.S. dollars worth of night vision anti-poaching equipment to the Kruger National Park in South Africa. By the end of April this year, 393 rhinos had been poached countrywide. The Kruger National Park remains the hardest hit with 290 rhinos killed. Vusitwala has more. Anti-poaching measures continue to be a priority for wildlife organizations. The Peace Parks Foundation donated night vision anti-poaching equipment to the Kruger National Park. The chief executive officer of the Peace Parks Foundation, Werner Meiberg, says it has been very difficult to keep poaching activities for rangers at night. Meiberg says the 40 pieces of night vision anti-poaching equipment will be shared amongst the 600 rangers patrolling the park at night. One has to help and support rangers in terms of their night vision capability. Um, as you know, most of the poaching activities for rhinos take place at night. And by supporting the rangers with these type of equipment, we 
not only put them one step ahead of the poachers, but also uh, help them to improve their overall safety. You know, they're putting their, their lives on the line on a daily basis. And I think this will go a great deal towards helping them doing their job better. Anti-poaching measures are not only conducted by rangers alone. The Kruger National Park is also assisted by the members of the National Defence Force and the SAPS. Ken Max of the South African National Parks says the latest anti-poaching technology has shown some positive results. The most important component in this particular campaign, the field ranger, where you have a well-equipped, well-trained, well-motivated field ranger between the, the poacher and the animal, in this case rhino particularly, is critical. And, and to enhance the field ranger in, in that ability to carry out his, his duties in, a, in, a, in an effective and safe way uh, is paramount. Rangers have welcomed the night vision anti-poaching equipment. Kelly Ubisi has been working as a ranger for the past 20 years. Ubisi says it is extremely difficult to work at night. He says the equipment has brought a new method of doing their job. With these NVGs, um, we'll be able to work at night and um, it will be able to easily pick up the poachers when they exit the park and at times when they're on the field, aware that um, discharge a shot, we'll be able to move in swiftly and we'll be able to arrest them at the spot. Last year, over 800 rhinos were killed in the Kruger National Park and authorities are hoping to reduce the number this year. I'm Vusi Twala in Kruger National Park. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The chairperson of the Indian Business Council, Onkar Kanwa, says business leaders at the 7th BRICS Summit in Russia support the idea of a single BRICS visa. He was briefing the media on the outcome of the meeting between heads of state and members of the BRICS Business Council. South Africa was praised for deciding to grant BRICS members a 10-year visa. Kanwa believes this will increase trade among member states. We were all together with our leaders, and they have taken on record. We're also trying to see how we can ease the visa. It's very important for people-to-people visit. We can only do so much, but unless people-to-people visit, things will not happen. I must say this, uh, we have moved in, a, uh, you know, a move, we have made a move to all our governments to say that there should be a BRICS visa. Uh, I must say compliments to South Africa, They have already initiated and they have already started. 
Meanwhile, South Africa's power utility ESCOM has identified sources of possible funding to enable it to keep the lights on. Acting CEO and chairperson of the BRICS Business Council, Brian Mulive, says the power utility is looking to the newly launched BRICS Development Bank for possible funding. Last month, energy regulator NASA rejected ESCOM's request for a 25% electricity tariff hike. Mulife briefed the media on the outcome of the meeting between heads of states and members of the council at the 7th BRICS Summit in Russia. Uh, we can approach the market and get a uh, funding. Uh, it is also encouraging that the BRICS Development Bank has been uh, formed, which is uh, uh, largely going to be a development finance institution. So we can raise some of our capital expenditure from uh, the uh, from the uh, BRICS uh, Development Bank, uh, and, uh, and 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 it, it does look the effect that uh, uh, Parliament approved. Uh, the 23 billion equity injection and the conversion of 60 billion into uh, into equity uh, means that our gearing ratio has improved uh, and and gives us headroom to raise additional capital. The price of a range of food commodities on world markets is the lowest it has been since September 2009. That's according to the Food and Agriculture Organization. The monthly food index for June published by the UN Food Agency shows a decrease of almost 1% over the previous month. The index is a measure of the monthly change of a range of major commodities, including cereals, sugar, vegetable oil and dairy. FAO economist Mamun Amruk elaborates. The food price index averaged 165 points in June 2015, that is down 1.5 points from its value of the previous months. One thing to note is that the food price index is almost 44 points down from its value in June 2014. The reason behind this significant fall is that international markets they are well supplied in terms of agricultural product covered in the price index. In Kenya and Tanzania have invited bids for the construction of a high-voltage power line connecting the two, part of efforts to meet growing demand for electricity and deepen integration of their economies. The two countries will build approximately 510 kilometers of 400 kilovolt power lines and several substations to allow them trade in power. The tender did not indicate the cost of the project to be funded through financing by the African Development Fund and the Japan International Corporation agency. Bids are due by September 9. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 12.45 South African rand, at 9.89 Botswana Pula and at 7.51 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.64 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. On to commodities, gold is at $1,161 and platinum at $1,028 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $59.10 a barrel. That's all for now. Thank you, Amanda. Our sports update up next with Tammy Kuzer.
in your sport. Good morning once again. Holders, Ghana have been handed a tough draw for the Africa Games Brazzaville 2015 after being drawn with rivals Nigeria and two times winners Egypt. Senegal complete the quarter of Group D for the men's final tournament of the 11th edition of the Quadrennial Multisport event that is scheduled for the 3rd until the 18th of September this year, with matches mainly in the Congolese capital, Brazzaville. Host Congo are housed in Group A alongside Sudan, Zimbabwe and Burkina Faso. In tennis, Serena Williams reached an 8 Wimbledon final with a superb 6-2-6-4 victory over Maria Sharapova yesterday, her 17th win in a row over the Russian. The five-times champion will now meet 20th-seeded Gabin Muguruza in tomorrow's final. Yeah, well, it's definitely not an easy matchup. She actually has a win against me, and um, we had a lot of tough t- match the last time we played. So, and she's given me problems in the past. So, um, this time I have to just, you know, go in it, like have have fun and do the best that I can, and um, just try to stay positive and stay focused. Meanwhile, Sharapova agrees that Serena is always at her best when they meet. I always expect her to play the best tennis against myself and a few other elite players and um, she does always come up with um, great tennis and you have to be able not just to produce your best tennis but more and um, you know obviously it hasn't happened for me. And now in rugby, South African Springbok lock Philip van der Meer says that his exclusion from the Springbok squad and self-imposed special from the international rugby is because of lack of communication between himself and the Springbok management. However, van der Meer, who will be playing for the World 15 in their match against the Springboks at Newlands on Saturday, believes that the World 15 is determined to play good rugby in order to also help the Springbok World Cup preparations. Yeah, I'm not selected. Yeah, it's easy, it's easy as that. Um, yeah, I think there's a communication gap somewhere. But um, maybe after Saturday, Heineken said the door's open for everyone, so it'd be good enough to get selected. In cycling, South African M10 Kubega team principal Douglas Ryder says that they are delighted with how the team is riding at the ongoing Tour de France. The South Africans are participating as a wildcat and the first African team to take part in the race. In terms of our team yesterday, you know, Edward Bosenhagen coming fifth again and potentially could have been better if he hadn't been blocked into the barricades by his countryman, you know, who rides for a different team, Alexander Kristoff, who's actually the most winning cyclist of the year with 15 race wins already this year. But Edward was fantastic. We had a really tough day yesterday. And finally, in golf, Tobion Olesen leads in the Aberdeen Asset Management Scottish Open at Galen. The Dane has been playing poorly lately after an injury, but has opened with a tremendous 63 for 7 under par and a one-stroke advantage. Nick Dyke reports. Olesen had an operation on his left hand in February to correct a tendon problem. He returned to finish a remarkable runner-up in Mauritius, but he struggled to make cuts more recently. Having finished in the top ten at the Open three years ago, it's clear he likes Lynx golf, and he's reveled in good conditions to move to seven birdies in a flawless opening round. Daniel Brooks is second, having played in the last group and thrived in windier conditions for a 64. The defending champion, Justin Rose, is happy to start with a 66. The same as Ricky Fowler, Matt Kuchar, Shane Lowry and Graham McDowell getting off to his best start in quite some time. That's the end of our sport and back to Lulu Gabu.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. UN Security Council briefed on human rights situation in Burundi. Diplomatic row erupts between South Africa and Kenya and Ebola conference to generate funding and solidarity for West Africa. That wraps up after Africa Rise and Shine for today and this week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Matebula, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or Tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. You can also send us an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is the Soul Brothers with a song titled ICP War. <laughs> But 